So now I can encourage you to go to Galatians uh, chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. <coughs> I'm going to uh, <clears throat> read the first 11 verses of Galatians chapter 4. Uh, and before I do, before I start, I'm going to turn on our live stream. So. really need to pay attention to what I'm doing here a little bit better. There we go. Just pause, pardon me, while we move there. So we're going to read from Galatians chapter 4, uh, starting with verse 1. Paul is writing here and he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Have you ever wondered why there are so many fundamental differences among nations? I mean, think about it. We're all human beings. Uh, as, as some people say, we, you know, we all bleed red. Uh, our blood is, is fundamentally the same. Uh, although our, our skin tones are different, uh, we are all human beings created in the image of God. But if that is the case, why are there such fundamental differences among the nations of the world, or even within a nation, among different regions of that nation or cities of that nation? Think about a number of other questions. For example, why did the Balkans War of the 1990s happen? Even though it was against the self-interest of all the nations and all the people that were involved in that war. Who wants to fight a war? Well, why did it happen? Why did real democracy not take hold in Iraq after the Iraq War, after Saddam Hussein was deposed? Why did China not liberalize politically after it liberalized economically? After it began to adapt its economic system, many people thought that, ah, okay, a democracy is on the way, but that's not happened. Why? 
Why has South Korea had more success in controlling the COVID pandemic than the United Kingdom, even though our populations are very close to the same in terms of number? Why is there such a divide between EU countries in the northern part of the EU and EU countries in the southern part of the EU? I mean, after all, we're all Europeans, even, even we uh, here in the United Kingdom. We're, we're Europeans, we're part of Europe. Why are there so many differences? You'd have thought that we would all be roughly similar. Um, why does the entertainment industry have such a strong effect on people's lives? I mean, come on. To be able to play, play music doesn't equate with a high level of intelligence. Uh, no offense to musicians out there. I, I am one. So, so why do we look to so many musicians as if they have the answer for the world's problem? Why, why does it have such a deep effect? What is behind the recent trend to deplatform people? To keep people who have differing ideas and sometimes ideas that some people find offensive, to keep them from even, even talking or being able to present their ideas? And why do sociologists, psychologists, and government officials and others struggle to understand the answer to these questions? Why isn't anybody really able to come up with a coherent, effective answer to these questions? Have you ever thought about these things? Well, I believe that when we understand the reality that Paul was talking about here in this passage that we read, that we can understand the answers to these questions. Understanding the reality of this passage that Paul is describing here gives us insight to the answers to these questions that people who are just living in the world will never discover on their own. You can, knowing this passage, understanding this passage, you will understand as well how the church can influence the destiny of nations. How can a small group of people be so influential? Well, you understand this if you understand this passage and what Paul is talking about in this passage. Now, the background here for Galatians is that uh, many of the Galatian Christians, they were encouraged to become Jewish again. They had left their Jewish roots, those that were Jews. Uh, some of those who were Gentiles who were becoming Christians were being told by some of the, the Jewish Christians that, well, you need to observe Jewish customs and things like that. And so Paul writes Galatians to tell people, no, that is not the case. You know, you don't have to follow the Jewish law. In fact, we are not under the law any longer in the sense of having to have strict obedience to it and it governing our lives. We are under something else. We are under some other kind of dynamic. And Paul talks about this dynamic and he describes this dynamic with a Greek word that's translated here, uh, elementary principles. This word is very difficult to translate. It's very difficult to translate. And so sometimes you'll read the word elementary spirit, elementary principles, 
uh, elementary fundamentals, uh, any, any number of ways that it's translated. And it's very difficult to translate, uh, and that's why there's so many differences. And frankly, a lot of times, people's view of the scriptures uh, really conditions how they will translate this word. If I was going to translate it, I would translate it as elementary spirits. Elementary spirits. Uh, because it is talking about a spiritual reality, not some principle or fundamental, not some reasoning or, or, or reason proposition. It's talking about a spiritual reality. Well, what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to teach you the Greek word because I'm going to refer to these by the Greek word as opposed to elementary spirits. Because it's, it's better, it's easier to understand, and then I can give you a new definition, if you'll accept that. So the Greek word is this, stoikeia. It's not a vodka. You know, I, I, I listen to that all the time and say, that sounds like the latest Russian vodka. Oh, pour me a stoikeia, please. But it's not a vodka, uh, so let's try saying that, stoikeia. Stoikeia. Now, one more time for good measure, stoikeia. Okay, so I'm going to use that uh, throughout this to refer to these elementary principles. Now, the first thing that Paul says here that we need to understand is that all people are enslaved by the stoikeia, or the stoikeia of the world. All people are in bondage, are in slavery to the stoikeia of the world. Uh, and he says that they are enslaved by the stoikeia. And there is nobody uh, outside of Christ that is not living in slavery to the stoikeia that are operating in the world today. Now, a lot of people think that they're free, and many people are offended if you tell them they're not free, but everybody is under the influence of the stoikeia. Stoikeia are unseen spiritual forces that manifest themselves. You see them in the basic values, structures, and organizations of the society. You see stoicheia in the educational system. You see the stoicheia operating in the world through the government, like in the educational system. Here in the United Kingdom, uh, we have a naturalistic educational system. In other words, we teach science, we teach mathematics, we teach linguistics, that all of these are very, very appropriate things to teach, but we don't teach much about spiritual realities. And we certainly wouldn't find in any classroom talking about the spiritual reality behind the government. We would just assume that it's the government, right? But stoicheia are manifested, are shown, are demonstrated in these systems. And you can see them in the values. Our value of fairness. The UK value of fairness, which is not how everybody understands fairness, by the way. The UK value of fairness is shaped by stoicheia. Every bit as much as any other force that's in operation. Now, stoicheia can either be demonically energized or angelically energized. Some stoicheia, by their very existence, influence people to do things that are wrong, that are contrary to the Word of God. 
other stoicheia that are angelically influenced can influence people actually to do good things. Why do people in the United Kingdom tend to tell the truth when people in some other nations that I won't mention tend to lie a lot and even consider a good lie as something that is morally acceptable and beneficial? It's because the stoicheia influencing the legal system in the United Kingdom was influenced by the scriptures. And so we value honesty, and so the stoicheia that's angelically influenced here around the legal system is influencing people toward righteousness even if they are fundamentally unrighteous. It influences people to tell the truth. You see how that works? Everybody is influenced by these things. Everyone. Now, stoicheia seem like gods, as Paul says here, in the sense that they're influ they influence people very deeply, and people tend to worship the stoicheia. They tend to worship the values. You know, right now, a big value in our country is safeguarding, and rightly so. I mean, there's a pandemic going on, and we all know some of the history, the recent history uh, behind some of the, the, uh, the terrible, sinful things that have been done to children and things like that. So safeguarding is very, very important. And it's even enshrined in the laws. But that is becoming something that many people in our country are worshiping, almost as if, if we practice the right kind of safeguarding, we're going to keep people safe. The best safeguarding people cannot guarantee that people will be safe. The best safeguarding policy in the world will not protect people. What is the absolute best way to safeguard is for people to surrender their lives to Jesus and pursue righteousness and holiness and run away from sin. If we had a society where everybody was doing that, I guarantee you every child would be safe. Everybody would do what it takes to protect others. So people tend to worship the stoicheia that tend to be most influential or most operational in a culture at any one time. And that shows you how different cultures will have different stoicheia. One of our big stoicheia influences right now is on, on privacy. We want to have privacy online and the like, even though privacy doesn't really exist anymore. But you look at a place like South Korea, privacy is not as important as social responsibility. And that influences them. But these stoicheia are not gods. They are not gods. A stoicheia will enslave and imprison people and Stoicheia almost fully control the lives of people. But Stoicheia tend to deceive people into thinking that they're free. So if you go out on the street here in London this afternoon and, 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 and in a physically distanced way try to interview people on the streets and say, are you free? I guarantee you that probably 99 out of 100 people will say, yes, I'm free. But they're not. And you can see this. I mean, one of the ways you can see this in operation is how apparently free people 
will often tend to dress alike. They will tend to think alike. They will tend to behave in similar ways, but they say, no, no, I'm free. I'm free. They're not. And that is one of the great deceptions in our world today. People thinking that they're free from the influence of these stoicheia when they are not free from the influence of the stoicheia. It's a deception. So these stoicheia, as you see, exercise enormous influence over people and societies. The way people think, uh, the way we dream about the future. What do you want your future to look like? I guarantee you it's probably been influenced significantly by the stoicheia that you've lived under in your life. How you perceive the world. Do you see the world as almost like a machine in terms of naturalism? Or do you see the world as a place of mystery and wonder and spiritual depth? That perspective is shaped by the stoicheia that you have lived under most fully. And, and I've seen this in operations many times. I remember years ago talking with a, a church leader from Africa uh, who said, you know, when I go down to Africa, I have so much faith. I'm praying for people. I'm seeing people healed. Uh, I'm seeing amazing things happen. But when I fly back to London, as the plane is coming down for a landing, it seems like all of that faith goes. And when I'm here in London, it's hard for me to believe for the same miracles that I've seen in Africa. What is that? That's a stoicheia. That's the influence of a stoicheia. Uh, and people don't normally perceive this influence in their lives. We're not conscious of it, but it's going on all the time. Now, stoicheia influence one another and often battle with one another for the destinies of humanity. Two big stoicheia that are at war right now is the stoicheia, the economic stoicheia around China and the economic stoicheia around the United States. And they are different, as we know. They are fundamentally different and they are battling for the hearts and minds of the world. And the one that gains the most power and the most allegiance will ultimately become, have the deepest influence. And so we need to be alert to what's going on here. And we can see this, if you look at history, you can see the battle of Stoicheia in many of the wars that have been fought throughout history. And many of those dynamics, they are revealed if you have eyes to see, if you take a look. So as I mentioned, uh, stoicheia can either influence people for good or they can influence people for evil. And what determines this is human righteousness or human sinfulness. If in the society human beings are behaving in a righteous manner, whether or not they're Christians, they're acting in a way that is consistent, say, with the Bible as God's word. Uh, and that's the standard of righteousness, by the way. If they're acting in a righteous manner, that will influence everybody in society in a righteous way. If they act in a sinful manner, 
it will start to influence everybody in society in a sinful way. It's one of the reasons why consumerism is so destructive. Because as we've seen, consumerism is based on selfishness. I want to get all I can get. I want to take all I can take. I want to buy all I can buy. I want to consume all I can consume. It's a self-centered focus where uh, an economic system based on production is seeking how do we serve? How do we bless others? How do we build up society? How do we create institutions in society that have resilience, that have durability? And so how we behave and how people in a society behave influence and empower the stoicheia that are operating either righteously or sinfully. Now what? Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's look at an economic example. The Protestant work ethic of Northern Europe is based on Christian principles and it has built enormous prosperity around the world. The idea of hard work, working for the benefit of others, being honest, uh, you know, really contributing society, it's brought a lot of blessings into the world. The modern consumerist capitalism based on selfishness and greed has been the source of most economic disparity. Why do we have people who are inordinately wealthy and people who are uh, unacceptably poor in our society? It's because of selfishness and greed. Because of selfishness and greed. A governmental example. American democracy was founded on biblical principles. The idea that you have three separate but equal branches of government uh, is, to, is because the founding fathers of the United States knew uh, that people were inherently sinful and left to their own devices, they would really mess things up. I mean, you only have to look at America today to see how that operates. Even with our system, you can imagine how bad it would have been uh, had Americans not had that system. Uh, Soviet communism was founded on humanistic principles. And ultimately, it could not prevail. Because humanistic principles fundamentally become sinful. Or a spiritual example. Why are revivals and awakenings so important in history? Because revivals and awakenings tend to shift the lives of people and tend to alter the operational stoicheia that are in any society or in any region. Now there's a number of examples here of stoicheia. Uh, the law of Moses functioned as a stoicheia. That's part of Paul's point here. Uh, the law of the land, as we've talked about, uh, the cultures and the cultural differences that you see, they are greatly influenced by the stoicheia. Uh, the dominant religious systems in a country, you know, thankfully here in the UK, our dominant religious system is Christianity. It doesn't mean that everybody's a Christian, but it means that Christianity has influenced our, the, the fundamental uh, uh, organ, organizations of our society. But in India, it was Hinduism. In other countries, it's Islam. That's uh, an operational stoicheia. Uh, government systems, whether it's a parliamentary democracy like we have or a republican democracy like the United States. Uh, the materialism 
is a stoicheia. Consumerism, as I've mentioned, and you can see the influence of consumerism, by the way, through advertising. Advertising is an arm of consumerism to influence us in certain ways. So that's a bit, that's the heavy part. So by now, you all got stoicheia. Let's say that again so you got the word stoicheia. Okay, so you got that word there. That's the heavy thing. The big thing to understand, these are spiritual forces that enslave people. These are spiritual forces that enslave people and control their lives. And we were enslaved by these spiritual forces. In fact, some Christians still live in slavery, although they don't have to, because now let's get into the good news stuff. I've got good news and I've got even better news. So let's do the good news and then the even better news. Uh, although, actually, I can't even, the even better news is built on the good news, so there's nothing that can get any better than the good news. Which is this, that Jesus came to redeem people who surrender to him by grace through faith from slavery to the stoicheia. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be redeemed from the stoicheia. He died on the cross to redeem us from that slavery. He has redeemed us. Everybody who believes in Jesus and has surrendered to Him as the Lord and Savior of their lives has already been redeemed from the power of the Stoicheia. Jesus was born, as Paul is talking here, Jesus was born under these elementary spirits, under these Stoicheia, but He did not become a slave to them because He never sinned. He never allowed them to be the influence on His life. Jesus lived in that way, but He is the only person ever to have lived in freedom, which is why He can redeem us. And so Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to redeem people who were born into slavery. Both slavery to sin and slavery to the stoicheia and every other spiritual force that can be named under heaven. This is why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross then, furthermore, so that we could receive adoption as sons. He became like us so we could become like Him. Free. Free from the power of the stoicheia. So we could live like sons of God in freedom with authority over the stoicheia. So not only are we free from the stoicheia, but as a son, as an adopted son of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, in union with Christ Jesus, we are seated with Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians, in the heavenly places, and that means we are above the stoicheia that are operating in this world. Jesus has done that for us. It's kind of like Jesus said there in John chapter 8. He said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We are free in Christ Jesus. We are redeemed in Christ Jesus from the slavery that we had to the stoichia of the world. almost feel like I want to say, can I get a hallelujah? But I don't want anybody to shout here because we don't want to spread anything. So give me a silent hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Now here's the better news. And it's, it's really not better news because actually that Jesus died on the cross, that's the absolute best news, right? So it doesn't really get any better than that. that that's the highest news, good news that we have. But furthermore, maybe that's the best way to say that. As free people, as free people, Christians are called to disrupt the stoicheia so that people might be set free from their slavery and follow Jesus. So Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has made us sons. Jesus has made us heirs. And men and women were both sons of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus has done this. He's filled us. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's done all of this so that we might join Him in disrupting the stoicheia that are operating in the world to see people set free from their bondage to slavery and redeemed by Jesus Christ coming into the kingdom of God and into that freedom themselves. That's our mission. That's part of our calling as the body of Christ. Paul tells us we have the Spirit of Jesus in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The same Spirit that was in Jesus is the Spirit who lives in us. This unites us with Jesus and it unites us with each other in freedom. In freedom. We are known by God. God knows us as His children. Even as we know God. But it's even more important to know we are known by God. Paul says that for us as Christians, the stoicheia, these elementary spirits, have become weak and worthless. You hear this? For us as believers in Jesus, the stoicheia are weak and worthless. They're meaningless. But Paul warns us, if you turn back to the stoicheia and submit to them, you will enslave yourself. And this will disrupt your ability to influence anything. Frankly, I say this, that much of the church in the West and much of the church in the United States, I have seen, I believe, have submitted again to the stoicheia that are operating in society more than following the Spirit of God. And frankly, the stoicheia will masquerade as God's Spirit. They'll make you think you're following the Spirit when actually you're not following the Spirit, you're following the stoicheia that is in operation. And one of the clearest ways to see that is to examine what you do by the Bible as God's Word, not trying to find a proof text to support what you do, but allow the Bible to criticize what you do. <coughs> Pardon me for that. So we must not turn back to the stoicheia or we will lose our disruptive influence. And we need to examine ourselves and we need to be aware of this. So, that's the great news. Jesus has redeemed us from slavery to the stoicheia and slavery to our sin. And Jesus has empowered us with authority over the stoicheia so that we can disrupt the power of the stoicheia. We will not replace them, by the way. You, they will not be removed until Jesus Christ comes again. 
They will continue to operate until Jesus has come again to redeem this whole world. And everything on heaven and on earth are united together in Christ, which is God's purpose. So the stoicheia are going to be in operation, but we have been empowered to disrupt the stoicheia. And that's our mission to do that. And our mission, disrupting the stoicheia, is every bit as important to seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ as you going out on the street today and stopping strangers on the street and telling them about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that that is unimportant and that we should stop doing that kind of thing. We must continue to do that, as you'll see here in a moment. But if we don't disrupt the stoicheia, it will be harder and harder for us to see people set free. But the good news is we've been called to do it. So how do we do it? How do we do it? I'm going to suggest a few things. First of all, personally, as an individual, as a person, what do you need to do? You need to anchor your identity fully in Jesus Christ. Jesus has provided all you need. If you are looking to anything in the world for your significance, your security, or your acceptance, ultimately you will become a slave to the stoicheia. Only people who have their identity fully grounded in Jesus Christ can really be that disruptive influence. We also then, secondly, need to practice daily awareness of the influence of stoicheia in your life. You need to be on the lookout. You need to be aware. You can't turn on a television without encountering the power of stoicheia operating through the stories that are being told. Now, one of the things that Karen and I routinely do when we watch television, we talk back to the TV. We say, well, we renounce that, or we forward through things that uh, are just trying to indoctrinate us because we don't want to allow ourselves simply to submit to that. We want to be actively aware of the influence that's coming in our lives. And you can do that. You need to ask yourself this daily question in light of this. Will I live in freedom or in slavery today? Will I live in freedom or in slavery? If you do not choose freedom, if you do not choose awareness, if you do not choose to live out of your identity in Christ, you are by default choosing slavery. Then you need to make sure that you're living a kingdom lifestyle. Now by kingdom lifestyle, I'm not talking about somebody who sells all they have and, and just lives with a, an old itchy wool robe for the rest of their life. It means that your life is oriented toward the reality of Jesus Christ your life is oriented to the reality of God's kingdom in this world, and you make choices on the basis of that reality that oftentimes are counterintuitive, are countercultural, uh, counter the stoicheia that are in operation. We need to live the kingdom lifestyle, and we need to resist the social pressures to conform and obey what God commands us. And God will talk to you and He'll give you commands each day. If you'll allow Him to, He'll lead you in the power of your Holy Spirit. Then secondly, we need to build on what we do personally by what we do as a family. Because your family is important. If you are in a family, in any form, 
It is absolutely essential. Your family is important. So as a family, you need to do all the above things I've just mentioned. Plus, you need to promote health in your family. The health of your family is one of the most important things that you need. The health of the relationships, particularly if you have children, the health of husband and wife. That is the most important relationship in your family. You also need to disciple your children intentionally. So many parents, so many Christian parents, and I have seen this now for 40 years before I was a pastor, so many Christian parents relinquish the discipling of their children to other organizations and institutions, uh, some of which are the church, some of which are the schools. And frankly, if you relinquish the discipling of your children even to the church, but your church then is being influenced by stoicheia more than the Holy Spirit, there's a problem. And it's not surprising that so many children in the last 30, 40 years have walked away from their faith in Jesus Christ. So we must be intentionally discipling our children. If you do not disciple your children, you will lose them. Now this is one of the reasons why every week Karen is putting in the sermon club notes a Bible study for the kids. I mean, this is to help you to disciple your children. The church can't replace that discipling, but it can help you augment that discipling, maybe help you with some tough questions that might come up or things like that, and, and that's what we need to do. So you disciple your children, and as a family, you resist the societal pressures to conform. Right now, there's a lot of pressures on families in our society to conform with certain ways of doing things that are not necessarily healthy for your family. And so we must resist those pressures to conform to the stoicheia operating around. And by discipling your children, you will teach them how to live in freedom from the stoicheia and how to make good, healthy, wise decisions. And that's part of what our goal here is at City Temple. It's not to fill children with a lot of Christian knowledge, but to help them make good Christian choices where they can stand for Jesus in their lives. And then, on top of all these things, as an individual, as a family, it's the church. As a church. And you need to understand, you cannot stand alone. You will not remain free on your own. Your family will not remain free on its own. We must stay together as the church. That is God's purpose. That is God's intention for us. It is absolutely essential. And as the church, we need to do all the other things that I've just mentioned. Plus, we need to have a corporate life together. We need to have a fellowship. Now, fellowship is best in person, but you know what? I've heard from a number of people here, even yesterday I was talking to somebody in the church who was talking about how important the Zoom fellowship has been for them. And one of the great things about Zoom is, with the church, you don't have to travel for an hour to get to CT in order to have some connection. Now, we want to have both. We don't want to sacrifice in-person fellowship. That's essential. But we also want to make sure that we have a life together as God's people. 
so that we are sticking together. Another dynamic then, as a church, we need to have corporate worship. It's why Sunday services are so important and why we are engaging in worship, uh, honoring the Lord through music, uh, through song, through prayer, through preaching. This is an act of worship. All of this is corporate worship. And corporate worship disrupts the stoicheia. All of these actions here, as we're doing these things, we start to disrupt the stoicheia. As you're making these personal decisions in your life, you're disrupting the stoicheia. As uh, we're, you're making these family decisions, you're disrupting the stoicheia. So as we worship the Lord together, as we do these things as a church, we disrupt the stoicheia. Corporate worship, corporate prayer. The Thursday night and the Friday night, really seeking the Lord. I'm really excited that uh, the Kohat pursuit for the next several weeks is going to go out on the streets on Friday night to pray and to worship. That's important. Now, they might get all kinds of angry looks. Uh, they, they, they might not have anybody respond. They might have everybody walk away. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Because the very act of worshiping the Lord and praying publicly disrupts the power of stoicheia and the influence of stoicheia. That's why we do it. Corporate prayer and proclaiming the good news. As I said before, you know, it's important for us to disrupt the stoicheia, but the very fact that we proclaim the good news, and by the way, evangelism is about proclamation. It's not about conversion. It's never been about conversion. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can convert people. It's not your job to convert them. It's simply your job to give the message. And you don't have to preach it. You don't have to shout it. Even doing something that Johan's doing here right now in this room. Uh, those of you who are here, you can see that. Those of you who are at home, I could leave you in suspense. But what Johan, he has a t-shirt on that says, Jesus loves you. Do you know wearing that t-shirt out in public is proclaiming Jesus? That's an act of proclamation. That disrupts the stoicheia. That disrupts the stoicheia. Proclaiming the good news. These are things that we do as a church. And so when we start living our lives individually, as a family, and as a church in these ways, we disrupt the power of stoicheia. Now, but that leads us to this point. You know, I, one of the things that, that I've found over the years of being here at City Temple, we've had lots of conferences here. And I've heard a lot of people say a lot of things about spiritual forces in the heavenly realms and, and casting down demons and, and all of this stuff. And frankly, most of the time, I think we were just blowing hot air. Because nothing changes. Nothing changes. You know, if, if I'm meeting with somebody and, and they're demonized in some way, and I cast the demon out, their life is different, right? But if you say you've cast the demon out of a city, but nothing changes, you've got to ask, did I really do what I thought I did? Okay? And, you know, frankly, I have heard so much hype over the years of being a pastor, and I've been part of some of the hype over the years I've been a pastor, that it's just really easy to start saying, yeah, 
okay, this all sounds well and good, but it really sounds a little insignificant. Uh, it sounds like you just needed an interesting topic to preach on. Uh, you know, and, and then you look at a group like us, you know, and then, then a lot of people say, well, you know, that might be true. Okay, this all might be true if you have a church of 5,000 people gathering together, which nobody in the UK has a church of 5,000 right now. How about that? Uh, gathering together. Uh, you say, that's all well and good if I got all these people gathering together, but, you know, I'm looking around me. We've got about 20 people here in the sanctuary, uh, a number of other people gathering from home with their family and things like that. Uh, and, you know, can we really make a difference? Is what we're doing, the worship we're doing, the, the prayers that we're praying, are we really making any difference against these mighty stoicheia, these elementary principles, these elementary spirits? And really, is what we're doing, does it shape anything? Does it change history? Does it shape the destiny? And these are legitimate questions to ask. So I want to close with a story. It was some unnoticed, unremarkable Monday in Leipzig, uh, there in Germany, in 1979. Uh, it was part of East Germany at that time. Uh, Reverend Christian Fuhrer began an obscure prayer meeting with a handful of people. Just a few people gathered together. They started praying in the Nikolai Church there in Leipzig, uh, in the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, East Germany. Every Monday, they prayed for peace and justice. For 10 years, they endured suffering and defamation because they dared to meet together as a church. Yet, little by little, the prayer meeting grew. At some point, they decided that, you know what we should do is light candles as a symbol of peace. And so they would do that. Monday, October 9th, 1989. About 10 years later. Another prayer meeting. People are gathering. They're here to pray. They're praying for peace. The prayer meeting is set to start at 6 o'clock. The idea is to use the Nikolai Church, as they usually did. But people tried to arrive, and they found that the church was already full. But it was 4 o'clock. So, some people decide, let's go down to St. Thomas Church. They get there. That's full too. But, some people, they manage to find space in the church. The people sit and stand wherever there's room. The pews were filled long ago. This is the words of Christian Fuhrer. When more than 2,000 of us came out of the church, I will never forget the sight. Tens of thousands were waiting outside in the square. They were all holding candles. When you hold a candle, you need both hands. You have to guard the flame to stop it from being blown out. 
That night, 70,000 people gathered on the streets of Leipzig. But by then, people were gathering all over East Germany to pray. On November 9th, 1989, one month later, the wall came down. Now you might think it was political engineering. You might think that it was the brilliance of Ronald Reagan, the US president of, at the time, or Margaret Thatcher, prime minister at the time, that brought about this significant change. You might have heard that, oh, it was the fact that the, uh, the Soviet Union was collapsing under the weight of its own military infrastructure. You might have heard that, that the systems of East Germany were crumbling, were falling apart, and so it could not stand. You might have heard any number of these ways that people try to make sense of what happened. But let's, let's hear from Horst Sinderman, one of the leaders of the old East German regime. He said this before his death, and I quote, We had planned everything. We were prepared for any eventuality, any except for candles and prayers." Close quote. Our call is to disrupt the stoicheia. And as we do, walls will come down. As we do, people will be set free from slavery to sin and Satan and the stoicheia. As we do, more and more people will come to know the love and grace and wonder of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us continue to disrupt so that millions might go free. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you, we honor you. Father, I know that this is a, a tough topic in many ways. I pray, Lord, that you give people understanding by your Holy Spirit and help us all stand together against these amazing spiritual forces of evil that are influencing the lives of many, many people. Father, I am confident. I have faith for what you are doing in and through us and how in and through us and the faithful witness of this church in this place for a very, very long time, you are changing, shifting the stoicheia over the city. Let it be so, so that Jesus might receive all the glory, honor, and prayer, and so that millions might come to faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose bodily from the dead for our salvation and our freedom. We love you and we praise you. We worship and adore you, and we pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, now we'll go back and do our closing song of worship. It's uh, kind of sad that we only have short times, but...